and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobitz van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good early morning to you, Kobitz. Good morning. Well, we're going to do a little bit of an unusual show today, Kobus, because normally what we do is we bring on a guest or we talk about something topical. A couple years ago, though, we did a show, uh, a behind-the-scenes show at the China Africa Project, and it was very, very popular. Um, and since then, in the past couple years have gone by, we haven't done one. We do receive quite a bit of email and Facebook posts and Twitter questions that we don't have a chance to get back to people directly all the time. So what we've done is we've kind of collected a whole bunch of our emails, our comments, our listener surveys, our Facebook posts, feedback on the show. We're going to talk a little bit about what you think of the show, also a little bit about us to introduce us to our audience, because our audience has grown quite a bit in the past few years since we last did a show like this. And one of the biggest, most frequent questions that we get is, who are we? Who are we? Where did we come from? Why are we doing this? So, Kobus, I think that's actually a very good place for us to start is kind of talk to, do, talk to us a little bit about our backgrounds and an introduction as to who you are, and then I will follow up, and then we'll talk about how the China Africa Project actually came to life. Yes, so um, I am South African. I was born in Johannesburg um, and, um, and grew up in Johannesburg. And then, you know, I was working as a journalist and then I moved to Japan to go to grad school. Um, so I started off in being very interested in Japan-Africa relations, especially as it relates to media. Um, and then when I came back from Japan, um, it was um, just as the, the global economy was tanking and I, I was working again as a journalist in Johannesburg. And what year was that? And, um, that was 2008 from okay. 2008. Um, and from that time on, China in Africa became really big. And I started, you know, after after years in Japan and years in, in a PhD program, I was back in the real world and I suddenly realized, whoa, this China-Africa thing is huge. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so then um, when I when I decided to go back to academia to start, um, to start a postdoc, that was the moment when I started collecting every single thing I could do about China-Africa because I knew I wanted to compare China, um, Japan-Africa with China-Africa stuff. Um, and then I started putting out feelers, and that's actually when I met you. On that was in 2010, somewhere around there. Yes. Now, yes. I think you're being a little bit modest here when you say you, were, you went to Japan to do your PhD. You actually did your PhD in Japanese, right? Yes, it was. It was uh, my all of my coursework was in Japanese. Um, I was I was lucky enough that I wrote my dissertation in English. I have to quickly point out because writing a PhD dissertation in Japanese is no joke. I know, <laughs> um, but that is still so, mind-numbingly um, impressive in terms of taking yeah, all those so courses all of, in Japanese. A, a lot of a lot of research reports and you know, kind of presentations and stuff happened in Japanese. So, okay. yeah, it was a very Japanese space. Well, so you and yeah. I crossed paths in 2010 on Twitter, and I'll just give a quick little background to how that came to be. Uh, I've been a journalist for 25 years uh, with most of the major international news channels from the Associated Press to BBC to CNBC to the BBC uh, to France 24, uh, all over the map, all over the world I'd been working uh, prior to 2010, when I met Kobus, I was actually in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And I'd been going back and forth to the Congo from 2005 to 2010 regularly. And that's where I started to see the Chinese in Africa 
kind of the, the story just pick up pace. So in 2005, when I went to Kinshasa for the first time, my brother was living there and he was working in TV production. And there was no Chinese in Kinshasa. There was one Chinese restaurant and it was non-existent. It wasn't even a story. And you wouldn't expect it to be a story. By 2006, there was a little bit more. There was another Chinese restaurant and you saw you know, a little smattering of a Chinese community that's there. 2007, 8, all of a sudden, the construction projects are starting to kick in. The presence is there. By 2009, when I was preparing to move to Kinshasa, uh, the entire business class, no joke, of the Paris to Kinshasa Air France flight was all Chinese. And that's when I said, what is going on here? And when you got on the ground in 2010 in Kinshasa, and not only in Kinshasa, but also in Bukavu, in Goma, in some of the other parts of, of the DRC on the eastern side, uh, the Chinese community was strong. It was vibrant. It was, you know, construction. It was expatriates. It was, you know, kind of small shop owners. And it was a very, very diverse community. And what I was reading in the press was this very, very binary narrative you know, China's neo-colonial kind of approach to Africa. They're stealing everything. They're destroying everything. And I got this very different response from my employees who and my staff in, in, in Kinshasa. I said, what do you think of the Chinese? And they gave me this very nuanced answer. Well, they're good, but, well, this is bad, but this is good. And it was always very, very complex. And that was really what, what opened my eyes that there was a story here to do and some, to, to show the texture and the complexity of this relationship more than what the traditional media narratives that we were reading out of mostly the Western press at that time, which was China bad, Africa victim, uh, this is happening again. It was all framed in imperialism, colonialism and whatnot. And that's when I started to blog and to write. And I noticed that there was this really kind of pent up demand for this type of writing. And so I started blogging and writing for about a year. My project in the Congo came to an unceremonious end, in part due to the utter incompetence, um, stupidity, uh, kind of what I call the violence of the American bureaucratic system working with the U.S. Embassy in <laughs> Kinshasa. And it was just, it was a horrific experience working with the Americans. Uh, I am myself am an American, so I feel comfortable in saying that, that uh, in, on these few points, Donald Trump is absolutely right that we are just a bunch of bozos there there is something to to a, you know there's a grain of truth in every kind of craziness uh, and in this case the the Kinshasa embassy for the United States of America is just a piece of crazy land and so our uh, and I'm not bitter no I'm not bitter uh, our uh, no not at all so our project came to an unceremonious end and we had and unfortunately Kinshasa is not the kind of place that you can kind of hang around so uh, we had to leave very quickly and we got out and we went to Paris. And in Paris, I became a journalist for Radio France International and later became the editor-in-chief of France 24, France 24, uh, their digital division. So, uh, so kind of continuing the journalism. But when I got to France, I was unemployed and sitting in coffee shops. And I got to write these very, very meticulous, detailed blogs about the Chinese and kind of about, you know, Africans and about kind of all the politics. But finally, when I got a job, I couldn't do that anymore. So that's when I went, oh, I don't have the time to do this. So I went out onto Twitter and I said, does anybody want to help me kind of, you know, create a blog, a podcast and to do this China Africa project thing? And that's where you kind of came up very quickly. And we the podcast has been going since then. What's 2010? I think it was 2010. Yeah, yeah. 
So we're now think, yeah, kind of 2016, I think, yeah. early 2011. So we're five, you know, five and a half years into this, which is really remarkable. And it's really great because we now have context and we've had a chance to speak to hundreds of guests and do produce hundreds of shows over the, the past five and a half years. Um, yes. But, you know, another question we get, Kobus, is do we make any money out of this? Is this our job? So I'll let you take that one. Um, the short answer is no. Um, you know, kind of this this is um, this is a, a passion project, um, and to a large extent, we've we've managed to to be as kind of objective and free as we are because we're not being paid by anyone, because we're not being funded by anyone. However, we are at the moment, you know, kind of looking to expand this project and to try and 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 go beyond our current scope. Um, and so we, we are probably going to be looking for some kind of funding um, at some stage, but we're going to, whatever, whatever funding we get, we'll always, uh, you know, kind of balance it against our independence. It's always going to be, we can never be paid by some kind of government or paid by, you know, kind of someone with a very strong agenda that's going to pull us in one or other direction. Yeah. So it's always going to be really important to, to maintain that kind of even keel. The nonpartisan part, partisanship part, is very important. So we're setting up a 501c3, which is the nonprofit status in the United States, uh, and then also through uh, you know Witts University in Johannesburg, where where Cobus teaches, the opportunity to take grants and other money. But we're going to be very particular because we don't do this for the money. We don't actually need the money per se in terms of this doesn't pay our rent and feed our families and do anything like that. It is truly a passion project. So taking a corporation or taking money from a government that actually has an agenda on the Chinese in Africa, or more importantly, taking it from the Chinese themselves who want to promote uh, you know, what they're doing, that doesn't appeal to us at all. So, um, so we're trying to find kind of, you know, foundations and grants that, you know, like the Gates Foundation or Carnegie or the Open Society, who already do fund quite a bit of China-Africa research because of what we do is a little bit different given the fact that we're in this social media space. We're not in the academic or, or research areas that most of the China-Africa uh, kind of content is produced out there. Um, Kobus, who do you think our audience is? When, you're, when we're talking to people and we produce the show every week and when we're actually out on Facebook and we're doing Twitter and we're having our email newsletter, we've got a Weibo feed in Chinese, who do you think we're talking to? Who do you kind of have the picture of? Um, I think we're talking to uh, to a bunch of different communities at once. Um, you know, kind of, and in, especially in our case, I think we're realizing that the China-Africa space isn't one community. Um, it's a bunch of different little little villages, um, uh, you know, kind of spread across the internet. Um, so some of our core constituencies are um, are academics and grad students. Um, also, a lot of a lot of diplomats and people who work in places like the State Department, um, a lot of people in think tanks, um, because we are we are it is a niche, you know, kind of uh, topic. Um, it is it is quite wonky. Um, so um, and and some of my friends who you know kind of who are in other fields have listened to the podcast and told me it's 
I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, the um, but you know, but but I think we're also reaching a, a surprisingly wide audience in the global south, um, and especially through our social media work um, and Facebook, particularly hits a very wide audience of people who don't listen to podcasts. So it is you know kind of this you you move into smaller and wider niches depending on on which kind of platform you use, um, and you end up speaking with on the podcast speaks to people in. Um, you know, kind of in other places than than say the newsletter does. Yeah, the uh, the podcast does about between ten and twenty thousand downloads a month, which by podcast standards, for those of you who follow this kind of burgeoning business, uh, puts us well in the top fifteen percent of all podcasts worldwide in terms of numbers of downloads. Uh, so that is really uh, very exciting because any podcast that's over about five thousand downloads per month is in the top twenty percent. We do, depending on the week, between twelve thousand and twenty thousand a month. So, and in, in, in through our partnerships with the Huffington Post and China File and some of the others that we're developing, uh, that helps drive the traffic for that. But I think, as Cobus pointed out, each audience that we kind of deliver on each platform is different. So we have a lot of young people. The average age on our Facebook community, where we have about two hundred forty thousand people, is eighteen to twenty-five. That is where the the average is. But certainly on our newsletter and our podcast. I think it definitely is the more kind of academic, wonkier, uh, older audience that's there. Okay, Kobus, let's now get into the um, to some of the critiques that we get. So uh, unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, because I actually like the critiques because I think it actually helps us and it, you know keeps you honest. And some of some of the best critiques have have actually helped us improve the show quite a bit. Uh, one critique we got a few years ago from a friend of mine was, you know, we were doing forty five minute hour long shows, and he's just like, I can't get through it. And that's when we cut down to 20-minute shows. So these critiques really do help us. Uh, our good friend Barry Van Wick at, uh, at, at Vitz University also said that our, 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 our text was too long on the podcast information page. So we cut that down quite a bit. So we do value all the kind of critical, as long as, of course, it's not trolling, which we do get our fair share of trolls from here and from time to time. But let's go... Um, Let's read a couple of the comments. I won't read the, the hateful things about me. I'm going to let you do that. But uh, let's start with, uh, with kind of some of the, the, the more sensitive issues. Kobus, um, you're a white guy. I'm a white guy. Take it from there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very white. Um, I am, however, African. Um, my, so I'm, you know, kind of super white. But the uh, but my family has actually been living in Africa for about three hundred years. My my dad did the history. Um, yeah, I'm I'm an example of the actual the hybridity of identity that is that you find on the ground in Africa. Um, you know, kind of uh, there's no real other place I can go. It's not like I, I'm not really an immigrant to Africa that I can just leave and go home. You know, kind of this is where I'm from. Um, and I come to this from this kind of position of hybridity, um, not only as, you know, kind of as, as, a, as a white African, but also as you know, someone who spent a lot of time in East Asia and, you know, kind of who, you know, who speaks Japanese for some crazy reason. And so it's, you know, kind of, it is a complicated kind of position to come from. But I think I try and use it in order to to never really take take a position and to um, to reflect complexity back. You know, kind of that's, that's actually the best I can do. You know, kind of and to try and be aware of some of the, some of the kind of the political stuff that kind of underlies my position. Yeah, uh, Eric, you know, the, you're white. <laughs> I'm white as well. And uh, and and the the race issue is one that I've been 
dealing with for most of my career and, in fact, throughout much of my education as well. Uh, so when I was young in, in junior high and grade school, I was one of a handful of whites in a predominantly African-American school. Then later, uh, as I started getting involved in Chinese affairs, you know, I started studying Chinese at 15 years old, spent almost 10 years in China. Now I live in Vietnam. I've lived in Africa and whatnot. And so being a minority is something that I'm actually very well accustomed to. But race is one of these very complicated issues, particularly race in media. And I understand when people kind of email us and there's a little bit of frustration that you and I are both white, yet we're talking about issues related to Chinese and Africans, Africans themselves, not necessarily black per se. And I think that's really one of the, the frustrations that when you talk about race in Africa, it's always implied that it's black, which of course would really offend those in North Africa and Egypt and Tunisia, uh, not to mention, as you talked about, you know, your, you know, your ancestors and whatnot politically sensitive as it may be. But for us, you know, what we're trying to do is really kind of bring the ideas out and, and transcend race in that sense. But there is this frustration that we hear directly from people that they're not hearing it through their own voice. And I totally get that. Yes. I totally understand that. I fully appreciate that. There is nothing that you or I can do about that. Um, the other Except part of Except for trying to diversify the voices. Well, that, let's and know, we'll get to that very, very soon. Yes. One of the issues, and I and this was brought up when I was the uh, vice president of KSCI TV in Los Angeles, which is the largest Asian TV channel in the United States, uh, based out of LA, serving Korean, Japanese, Vietnamese, uh, Chinese, and Filipino communities in Southern California, which is very, very large, hundreds of thousands. And people would say, well you know, you're white, so therefore you can't be doing this, or you shouldn't be doing this. And I said, kind of flip that equation around. You know, for a long time, white people said, you are blank, you can't be here. You can't be doing traditional journalism. That was offensive back then. And even to this day, it actually happens quite a bit. So doing that in reverse is equally offensive. Now, I, I don't take it as offense, but it can be seen that way. And so, again, what, what I do when I get into discussions about the question of race with people either on Facebook or on email and whatnot is admit that, yeah, we're not trying to hide or be anything that we're not. But what we want you to do more is to judge us on the questions and the discussions and the ideas that we bring up in the hope that that actually transcends race. But we also at the same time fully appreciate that in order for this conversation to be everything that it should be, it must also include voices from within those communities, right? So Yes, as, as much as absolutely as we can. And, and we really do try. Okay, so um, let me read a couple yeah. comments from our listeners here because this has been something very interesting. And just um, for to everybody's benefit, we get these emails since we did not reach out to people to ask them for permission to read this on the air, um, we're not going to include their names. So, uh, but here's a comment from a listener. Invite more black Africans, too many Western white folks as guests, and try to have a bit more empathy for black African people, not the governments. Why don't you go ahead and start with that one? Okay, I'm not sure exactly what this what this writer meant by us having more empathy. I, I'm, I'm guessing that in our discussion of African issues, we should have more empathy with normal Africans and I mean, we we tend to criticize African governments quite a lot, but um, so okay, you know, kind of, I'm not 100. I'm sure I'm getting that part of the of the comment. Yeah, but I, in relation to the to the yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was just saying I don't, you know, more empathy for Black African people. I don't quite know what that is, but I think that might be a theme, and this is one that you bring up quite a bit, 
as Africa as victim. And you talk a lot about this as Africa's victim. And I'm wondering if that's what this person is kind of referring to. It might be. It might be. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, um, I I personally tend to think that the, the immediate and frequently very um, well-meaning kind of um, positioning of Africa as always the put upon, always the one without decision making power, that that's trope i think can be very damaging um you know kind of and, and i think it has a lot of kind of political impacts on africa in relation to the rest of the world very damaging impacts um that doesn't that means that african governments are frequently not called to account um but you know kind of i mean that's uh, you know that that's a big kind of like political discussion to get into you know but um as it relates to the to the guests we share your frustration it's yeah. um it we really know, do we, we we really are always looking for people. What, what, two things you have to keep in mind. One is that, um, is that what you frequently, what you're hearing are not necessarily race. What you're hearing are accents, right? So you may, you have to remember there's a lot of, of people of, you know, kind of East Asian and other Asian and African descent that we speak with who are speaking to us from London and from Washington and so on. Um, you know, kind of so, so whom, you know, kind of who you, where you're not hearing what sounds like an African voice, but obviously it actually is an African voice, you know, kind of, um, in other, but, but you, there is still, even if you, if you take those people into account, there is still quite a heavy, you know, kind of lean towards, you know, a lot of white people in London and DC. Um, and that, I think, to a, to a large extent, reflects the kind of larger institutional kind of biases of academia and think tankery um, and journalism. You know, there's still it really is there is still a lot of white privilege and white uh, kind of supremacy in these fields. And you frequently feel find that any field, um, especially when you talk to people from very top tier universities like we do. You kind of, you know, kind of like any field relating to any particular country or any issue on earth tends to weirdly be dominated by white people, um, because simply there are still a lot of white people in those elite institutions. Yeah, indeed. Um, uh, but there's also yeah. the problem that Ross Anthony at Stellenbosch pointed out to us to say that, you know, aside from Stellenbosch, and you probably know this better, Stellenbosch University in Cape Town, South Africa, um, there's yeah, virtually mine, where no I used to where you used yeah. to work. There's virtually no other university in, in, on the entire continent that has a dedicated China or much less a China-Africa program. And the resources just aren't on the continent in, in terms of developing an academia and a culture of analysts that we can tap into, that we and the rest of the media can tap into, whereas Georgetown, Oxford, you know, um, Harvard, Stanford have, you know, just a reserve of analysts that are sitting out there writing papers, writing thought point pieces. Also in Washington, Brussels and London, there's a number of foreign policy experts. Then there's the people in Beijing who are writing on this. And, and it's really a shortage of, of kind of qualified academics, qualified in the sense of accessible, working for institutions, have credibility, have published. And, and this is a broader problem within African academia. Yes, it is. It is. It is also what what is a, is a related problem is something that uh, that many of you know kind of many academics of color that I know complain about, which is that like once you get over all of these institutional hurdles and you know kind of like manage to make your way through through all of this kind of like uneven playing field to actually be an academic of color, you then find yourself being pushed forward as our academic of color. 
you know so it's this horrible situation where where you face a billion obstacles to get where you are and then once you are your present once you are there your presence is used to try and justify the institution and you end up having to do every single media interview because you're the one chinese person in that in that research group um which is this horrible kind of like queasy other side of the coin you know so like it's people being kept out because of their race and then people being being queasily and horribly kind of like you know kind of like Italy kind of pushed forward because of their race as the other side. Um, you know, kind of, and we, we, what we end up trying to do is like walk a balance where we just most of the time just, we, we most of the time frequently start with a piece of writing. Yeah. Um, with an article, a news article, an academic article, a think tank report or something that we found interesting. And then we kind of like chase down the authors. And that's frequently the way that we, we try and find the most interesting people. So it's always this kind of weird balance. You know, there's so many complexities to, to keep in mind. And then on the flip side, so that's on the African side, but on the Chinese side, we've actually shied away over the years from kind of hunting down Chinese academics, and in part because what we find is that, one, there's a language problem, and it makes it very difficult to understand if, if the Chinese you know, academic or expert or scholar's English isn't sufficiently strong. And this is the same problem that other podcasts that focus on China uh, you know, have to confront. The Seneca podcast done by Jeremy Goldcorn and Kaiser Guo, they kind of face the same criticism that they don't have as many Chinese. And one of the same problems that they encounter is what we're dealing with is language is a big problem and a big challenge, particularly for our audience where many of our listeners are English as a second language as well, which makes it even that much more difficult. There's no you know, discrimination or filters or we just try to get the best guests who can articulate the issue the best for our audience, uh, whether it be they from China, from the U.S., from Europe, and whatnot. Uh, but let's close our discussion, because we don't have a lot, lot more time left, with, again, this question of partisanship. And it's one of the critiques that I get uh, quite a bit. So uh, it, for longtime listeners of the show, people will hear that I'm very critical of the U.S. Uh, people will also accuse me of being, uh, of being called a panda hugger on a quite a few number of instances for being too China, too pro-China. So here's some, uh, some critiques. Uh, quote, again, from another listener, a bit, quote, China can do no wrong from Eric. He overcompensates for China's negative press. Another one is, Eric is at times thoughtful, but more often I find his bluster and soapboxing predictable and exhausting. And the third kind of comment that we got, and this one came from Facebook, Eric Olander was often biased and Kobus van Staden was more objective. So, uh, the, uh -huh. the <laughs> okay, so here's, here's where, where I think this comes from. Number one, um, there, people in the media and, and, and consumers of media, uh, listeners, readers, podcast users, whatnot, are not actually that accustomed to hearing defenses of China that are kind of presumably nonpartisan. The Chinese have probably one of the worst media operations and PR kind of public diplomacy operations of any major country in the world. I mean, they are terrible at it at a level that is just incomprehensible. So they don't articulate themselves very well. And if you follow Chinese press as closely as we do, where we're looking every day for our Facebook feed for different articles, and the Chinese media from CCTV and the like is just blatant propaganda. China is wonderful for Africa. China is doing great things for Africa. Africans love the Chinese. And it's just, and, and so we're able to discount it. 
So what ends up happening? Yes, this this whole kind of blocks of of media that we tend to not post. We yeah, we don't post the, the propaganda. We, we try to avoid yes, it. Government control. Unless yeah. we're putting that into a context, say Chinese media is trying to promote X, Y, and Z. So the Chinese media does a terrible job at articulating China's position on these things because it's just so propagandistic that we don't actually pay much attention to it. Now that doesn't. And this is what Chinese. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you. This is what Chinese journalists frequently also tell you. That's you know, right. When, when you're speaking with, with uh, off the record with Chinese journalists at at a lot of, of state institutions, then that is generally the line they take as well. So when things like you know China exporting prison labor to Africa. Uh, you know, all the myths that we talked about in our reporting FOCAC project that we did, uh, when we talk about slave labor and, you know, China's going to be buying up all of African agriculture, the Chinese do a terrible job at articulating why that's not true. Um, now, you and I, in me in particular, who follows China news a lot, um, is not shy about saying that's BS, that's not true, that's garbage. And when people hear a defense of China, they think that's an automatic endorsement of China. And I'm just saying, no, on this particular issue, China is, has a legitimate case to be critical. So, for example, yes. when Hillary Clinton or the United States government is criticizing China as it does regularly, even this year, for supporting dictatorships in Africa, and at the same time, the United States government either praises Ethiopia's democracy or says that the election of Museveni in, in Uganda is a good thing, you kind of go, well, wait a minute. And so then yeah. this is the flip side of the criticism that I get for being anti-American. I'm not anti-American. I'm from the United States. I, uh, you know, my culture is American. My education's American. My family lives in the United States. But I'm frustrated by my own government. And I do get to, I live in a country where I have the freedom to criticize that government. That does not mean I am anti-American. That means that where there is hypocrisy and where there's mediocrity, they deserve to be called out. And unfortunately for the United States and Africa, a mediocrity is abundant. And, and the duplicity of what the Americans do, where they criticize China for extracting resources from Africa, when the Americans are, you know, on a scale much larger in many cases of, you know, resource extraction, well, that's hypocrisy, or on democracy, or on supporting dictatorships, or on, you know, on clean government. The Americans have a very, very sketchy track record in Africa. Uh, and, and, and they are entitled to be criticized for that. So that's my point. Yeah. I'm not trying to sound defensive in any way, but I think the, the mission of what we're trying to do here is to call a spade a spade, whether that's for good or for ill. You know? And so when the American Enterprise Institute says that China's beating the United States in investment in Africa, you got to call them out and say, no, the United States is the number one foreign investor in Africa. And they, China's a far, far distant seventh and so we're trying to point out where people are wrong, where people are hypocritical, and not take any partisan side, be it pro-American, pro-Chinese, pro-African, pro-European, or anti any of those. What's your thoughts on that? And and I think we also, you know, kind of like I, you know, we we both come from media backgrounds. Um, you know, we we've both worked as a, as, as as media people, and I am a, a media scholar. And one of the things that that one has to keep in mind is that, you know, media is complicated and the you know there's a lot there that's there's a lot that's that's being communicated that's not being said explicitly so one thing i think that that's important to keep in mind is that anxiety about china is something that that unites all constituencies in the west 
right? You uh, can be and in Africa wing. too, by the way. I mean, we're not. This is and yeah, in Southeast yeah. Asia and in yes. you know in a lot of parts of the world. Anxiety about China is is uni- yeah, but, unifying but, theme. But particularly the West, the West still drives the global media. Yeah. they have a global media hegemony. Um, and you know, kind of so you can be a super left wing like Bernie Sanders voter, or you can be a Donald Trump voter, and you can both be anxious about China for different reasons um, or sometimes actually for the same reason you know kind of in relation to trade or relation to you know kind of a slipping of American you know kind of dominance in the world or whatever reason um, so that kind of becomes if, if everyone agrees then it becomes a kind of ideology um, you know it becomes an uns, unsaid unseen unexamined thing that that everyone just believes um, and that is a problem, um, especially when you're in, you know, when you're coming from like a place like the West, that is so complicit and has so many fingers and so many pies in Africa, that to then be super, super worried about China and to and to use China as a way to try and kind of pull people together across across a bunch of different um, fault lines within your own society, that is a fraught and ideological thing to do. It's not simple reporting. You know, kind of. So that's what that's what we're pointing out as well. Plus the fact that China frequently is terrible at at pointing out the things they do that are either actually doing well in Africa as well. And just right. And just to be fair, we also you know criticize China quite a bit. And so I think it's very important that if you're going to make a judgment one way or another on the show and our editorial balance, which everybody of course is entitled to do, um, it's really important to kind of step back and, and kind of consume a breadth of the show and the guests. Uh, because if you kind of come in for one or two, maybe three shows and hear a particular point of view, uh, either from me or from our guests, it, it can look like it's partisan in some way or biased in some ways. But that is uh, certainly not our objective in any way. Um, Kobus, we're, we've, we're out of time. We're actually gone on much longer than our normal show, which I think we have a lot to talk about. And we did not, unfortunately, have time to get to all of the comments and feedback and mail, but we do try to read them all. So if you would like to reach us, um, let's go ahead and give some email addresses out. Uh, you can reach me directly at eric at chinaafricaproject.com. Uh, you can find me at Twitter at eolander, that's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, or you can just go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Project, and you can post a message there. And I and Kobus, we're on that Facebook page every day, and we're getting to these messages within about five or six hours. So, uh, so there's a very quick turnaround time on, on, on these comments. And also, people, when they come through town, I live in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Uh, people ask and they, they, they want to get together. And I've had regularly, you know, fun lunches with people and uh, with people who listen to the show. And they just said, I'm in, in Vietnam or I'm in the U.S., uh, you know, if there's ever a chance to meet. And I love meeting folks. So if you do uh, are passing through Vietnam, in my case... Um, I won't speak for Cobus, but I love meeting our fans and, uh, and our listeners. So please do let me know and uh, from any of, those, uh, any of those different ways to get a touch. And we do respond to, to, to almost everybody. Cobus, go ahead and uh, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, they can reach me. Um, I've had problems with, with my, um, my email address at chinaafrica.project.com, which we're busy working out, just a small technical glitch. But the, um, I think the easiest way to, to reach me is actually either through our Facebook page, it's facebook.com slash chinaafricaproject, or th- through Twitter. I'm at Stadenesque, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. Um, I, in relation, I, I love I love speaking with our fans, and I love and and users, and I love 
interacting with them and meeting up with them. I love that. Um, in academia, there is this joke that any any academic, any email you're getting from an academic will start with a line, I'm so sorry for my late reply, um, because academics are just buried in email. Um, you know, kind of it's, it's one of the banes of our existence. So if I don't get back to you immediately, it's not because I don't love you. It's because there's just a, a heap of, you know, kind of grad students and postdocs and people I'm, I'm, I need to email. Um, but yeah, please, please contact me. And if you happen to come through Johannesburg, let me know. Um, and it'll, you know, I, I, I very frequently meet up with people who, who listen to the podcast and I love doing it. It's really fun. So five years going on six years, quarter of a million fans on followers on Facebook, over 2 million downloads of the podcast over those five those five and a half years, uh, you know, newsletters, all the different things that we've been doing. We're not going anywhere. We love doing this. This is, this is our, again, our passion project. It's, you know, I, I, we both have day jobs. Sometimes those day jobs aren't that interesting and aren't that fun. So doing the China Africa project is actually the highlight of the day at, in the evenings when we kind of post and went right and then do the, re, and do the recordings and whatnot. And then most importantly is hearing from you and be engaging with you. So, and we want to thank you. Um, you know, for five and a half years we've been doing this, the audience has been growing, the feedback has been positive, and we owe just an enormous debt of gratitude to each and every one of you for listening and supporting us. And we hope that we can continue to do that for another five, 10, 15, 20 years. Who knows, Cobus? We'll, we'll keep going uh, in, in the future. But uh, so until then, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again next week with another normal show of the China in Africa podcast. Thanks so much for listening.